Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. On today's episode, I had the chance to speak with my friend Jeff Holden. Jeff is the CEO and co-founder of Atomic Machine, and formerly worked as the CPO of Uber. He was also the Senior Vice President of Groupon, and was the Senior Vice President of Consumer Website Worldwide at Amazon. We had a great conversation in which he shares his thoughts on the art of invention, fatherhood, and big tech. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Thanks, Jeff, for coming. Thanks for having me. Actually, I'm coming to you. <laughs> That's true. This is the first one. You know, I always, uh, I shouldn't say judge, but uh, um, evaluate the long-term potential of a friendship and collaboration by the first time you meet someone and mm. how long that conversation goes and yeah. how you don't want to be pulled away. <laughs> and I think we did well on that metric. I, th- I think we did incredibly well. <laughs> um, we had never met before, and the first thing we started talking about was molecular nanotechnology. Right. And if anybody had read about you, heard about you, it wouldn't have been something that right. would have been come to mind as the first thing that you're talking about. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I just start with that. Okay. I mean, it's if, if we're starting thinking fundamental in the world, uh, nothing yeah. more fundamental than nanotechnology. Yeah. When was the interest, and what are you doing with it now? Um, it started when I read Drexler's Engines of Creation, um, and I read it just because I bumped into it. Um, and this is probably I don't know, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, something like that. It was written in the mid '80s, right? Um, <clears throat> but uh, it, it just one of the one of the books that I, I read. Uh, Voraciously, I'm constantly reading. It's like I read, you know, uh, with you know audiobooks. I read with you know Kindle. I go back and forth between the two, and I'm just always, always trying to like pump stuff into my brain. Sometimes I read science fiction. Sometimes it's like you know really uh, nonfiction, really interesting technical stuff. So I read Engines of Creation, and that opened my eyes to what was potentially possible. And I loved uh, Drexler's, um, you know, very, very first principles look at the problem. And I was like, well, of course, you know, of course, like you know, and I, and I have a. a good or a bad habit uh, of wanting to jump right to the end point. Like I love the, I, I get my, this picture in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, we should make everything at the molecular level, of course, that makes perfect sense. And I'm like, I didn't want to just go build that. And so then I started, that, that, that motivates me to, to want to go learn a lot about the space. And one of the things I learned a long time ago, probably um, when I was at, this, this was most solidified in me during my uh, eight month stint at Tektronics working, this is like in 88, 89, I think. Um, I was working with a guy named Dave Meadows, who was my manager at Tektronics, and we worked on this, on this product called Laser Diode Test System. And this guy blew me away. He was a role model and inspiration for me because if he didn't know something, he just went and got a book and read it and just knew how to do it then. And it was like acquiring skills in the Matrix. You know right. what I mean? It's like he downloaded it in his brain. He's like, ah, okay. He didn't now have I'm to go and take a course and become a, no. a world expert in it in any conventional. Correct. He way. learned. He learned how to learn quickly and deeply. Like, and, and that was like astounding to me. And I was, and it really, it, it, I was like, well, he can do it. I can do it. And so I started doing the same thing. I wanted to learn about um, analog electronics. And so I, I, I decided to during my my the you know the time I wasn't working, which was like never at Tektronix, I was constantly in, in the lab. Um, I started building my own car audio amplifier. And I just wanted to see if I could do it, and I did it. And I put that in my car, and I drove around with that thing for years. And it was a damn good amplifier. Uh, and uh, and so you know, it's like it, you know, that that inspired me to like never be intimidated by different domains. And that went, and I went beyond that to learn that there's a huge amount of value at cross-disciplinary junctions. You know, I've talked about this. Um, you know, it's because people get siloed. You know, the educational system is siloed, and you know, academia. There, you know, businesses become very siloed. And really, when you unlock, when you unlock some, the world is an organism in silos. That's our our way of categorizing. Um, so when you go out and you try to crack a, crack the code on something in the world, you're often doing it across disciplines. And so that, in combination with a lack of fear, maybe an ir- you know irrational lack of fear, but about ascending learning curves, kind of you know made me pursue. I put I put the whole um, atomically precise manufacturing problem in my list of passions very quickly. I was, there's a few of these things that I, that I kind of I, you know, decided I want to put a huge chunk of my life against. Um, I also want to live long enough to live forever so that I can actually experience, live in this future that I can envision, right? But, uh, but that's how it started. Well, in, in the end, it's this, the same thing. We've, if we achieve molecular nanotechnology, there's 
nothing else we need to do. I mean, then it's up to our imaginations to do the rest. I don't know. I mean, there's, I mean, fast and light travel doesn't like pop out of APM. You know what I mean? That's true. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, those two things will get us really far. (laughs) That's for sure. Literally, I I like that you're thinking one step beyond (laughs) creating the most powerful technology that's ever existed. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, but it is true. I agree with you in the sense that APM um, you can think of it as a manufacturing technology, but if you, if you have the capability to manipulate matter the way you manipulate data, which is really what we're talking about, right? You just arbitrarily, if you, can ta- if you have a digital description of an object, you can render the object, right? If you, if, you, if you can get to that point, you can do so many things. I mean, you can, um, you can build medical nanorobots. We can build an augmented immune system. We can um, interface our brains to, to different you know, technology substrates like silicon and you know, the existing computation so we can expand our consciousness into the cloud, which is another of my big passions. Um, so I, I feel, I feel just as a sidebar on that, I feel very constrained by the size of our cranium. You know, I mean, that's a real problem. <laughs> we can't, we don't have the ability to expand our hardware, our wetware. And so the only real choice we have to expand our consciousness and our thinking capacity uh, in any kind of material way is to connect it up to another substrate and kind of move, you know, information back and forth. Um, eventually, maybe live in a different substrate entirely. But um, that's, a, that's, you know, I feel the best path to getting there for real is through this type of technology is you manipulate things at the molecular level. I mean things like VR done at the you know neural interface level, right? Right. Where you just you literally you can't it's made the matrix kind of concept. You really can't tell if you're in reality or virtual reality, you know? It's not even clear there's a difference at that point. Um, so anyway, so yeah, that's that's how I got onto that track and um, and now I founded a company, as you know, called Atomic Machines and we're we you know I, I basically founded the company specifically to um, attack that problem in an entrepreneurial way, which is super non-trivial because there's a lot of science between here and complete APM. You know, we have like the equivalent of a, a matter compiler and a matter decompiler in everybody's house, right? And, right. In every business, um, you know, we're we're far away from that. Many steps to get there, and so where do you start? And so where we're starting is with MEMS technology because uh, MEMS being microelectromechanical systems because it's a it's a I think a, a pretty unexplored. Um, you know, kind of world. There's, if you think about the whole ma- micro and nano technology world, um, and we actually, you know, we united to jam on this a little bit. I really want to, I really want to pick your brain a yeah, lot. Um, I look forward to that conversation. Yeah, it's going to be super fun. Um, you know, it's been done. We, there was kind of this technology that was discovered to make solid state electronics um, with photolithographic techniques, right? And all the kind of technology that developed around that and it's become incredibly sophisticated. And as that sophistication level has increased, the uh, feature length of the different you know components of these technologies, like the you know the, the sort of gate size and transistor, um, you know these things have you know, shrunk, and now we're down into the single digit nanometers, you know, um, and uh, you know that's that's great, but that's like one technology that has become the way we think about micro and nanotechnology in the world, and and so anything if you want to do anything that you can't do with that technology, it's kind of like a whole new adventure, right. You know, and that's what my company is focused on. We're using a totally different technologies to do, um, you know, micro scale and then ultimately nano scale um, technology. And we want to open that up as a platform for the world. I mean, there's something about uh, this sense of urgency that you have that must also be tied to, you know, well, the longevity uh, yeah. aspect of it or the uh, emulation. Um, there's but also this incredible confidence you have that it can be achieved. Yeah. Um, and you spoke a little bit about how that inspiration came along. Do you think, do you feel any urgency due to any stagnation right now technologically? And if there is stagnation technologically, where, where do you see that occurring? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I would say that uh, the stagnation thing is like a secondary driver for me. The primary driver for me is kind of the, just the do not tomorrow what you can do today thing. Like, mm. it's just, I always regret it. Like, if you think about, like, Jeff Bezos has this great, term, you know, regret minimization framework. And it's a way he tries to live his life. And we talked about this back at D.E. Shaw when I was working with him. Um, and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's brilliant. You know, uh, it's, it, you know, cause you really want to live your life to minimize regrets. And, uh, cause regrets, you know, come from things you, your choices you wish you'd made differently in the past. You can do nothing about now. Right. And, and usually they're regrets of omission. They're not usually mm. regrets of commission. So you, you rarely regret trying to do something. It's when you don't do something and you're like disappointed in yourself for not getting off your ass and doing something. So that, that wakes me up and gets me going every single day. Like I'm just like, I don't want tomorrow, I don't want to feel bad tomorrow about today, right. you know? And so, and if I do feel bad about it, then I just quit. It's better to feel bad about one day than one year than one decade of your life, you know? So you can course correct, but keep thinking that way. So that's kind of the primary, I think, thing that drives me. Um, 
And then the technology stagnation thing, the way I look at that is, this is kind of dark, I guess, but like whatever, you know, we're, we're always honest with each other, um, is I, I see so many people going through life kind of like either not doing anything to push the boundaries of humanity um, in, in sort of understanding of the universe or our capabilities, you know, just they're just kind of like existing in the machine, as I refer to it. Um, and then, and then obviously, a large number of people who are doing bad things to humanity, like setting us back. And we put so much energy as a species into dealing with crap. Like you know, I mean, Trump, you know, is like just producing immense amounts of noise that has to be processed by this engine yeah. of humanity, right? And so, my answer to that, you know, so, that, so I, I could sit around and I could lament that, and I could say, well, you know. Um, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and like you might as well just like strap in and just you know whatever. Um, but I find that incredibly depressing. Like I don't want to. I don't really actually want to live in that situation. So then I'm like, well, then what can I do with my life? What I can do with my life is I can try to advance humanity. I can try to push the boundaries of you know the understanding of the universe and of our capabilities as a species, and, and try to and sort of contribute my energy in that way. And I can contribute my energy in a way that hopefully, if I'm a good leader and I'm a good thinker and I'm a good executor and I'm a good entrepreneur, I can do it in a leveraged fashion that has profound impact. So I'm not just, it's not just one kind of like candle to, you know held up to the sun kind of thing, but it's actually you know meaningful. Um, and so that's those, those are I see are the two biggest drivers for me. And then there's things like wanting to be a good role model for my kids, you know. Right. I don't, I don't want to just tell them to have great goals and, and go. I want to show them what that looks like and show them falling down and getting up and persevering and, right? And so, you know, that's another motivation. But that's, you know, again, that's, I'd say that's probably tertiary to those other two. But there is probably this byproduct that you do for the world, whether it's your employees or people that, um, that use the products that you've made or that know about you that you have done for your kids right this is stagnation to me i also i have the sense that everything can be done too mm -hmm. and that it's my you know i want to get up and see what's created the next day and yeah. want to be a part of it rather than sit back and be depressed about any problems there right. are and i rarely am yeah like i i'll complain about stagnation while building something that i am confident will get over yeah it. i love well, that. The, and I, I think that you've led as an example in some ways beyond just your kids. But it did, since you did bring up being a father, I'm curious uh, if you learn anything from your kids that change the way that you do things outside of being a parent. Uh, yeah, I mean, like what, what I learned right away when I started having kids was they're an amazing mirror, um, a very truthful mirror of who you are. And you either get the you either get feedback immediately, or you get it in a longer time horizon where they start to mimic your really bad or really good behaviors. And 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 it's a very honest. It's very honest. Like there's no agenda. It's in a just, distressing way, from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> and there's of course cracks. Yeah. yeah. Sometime. And so I think you really have to pay attention and, li and listen and watch your children and, and like see what they're playing back to you. You know. Uh, and and you and you they they've also taught me that you know you have to. Um, you have you have to walk the talk, you know. You can't you can't. And I feel like I, I've been pretty good at that, but like they've really held me to that. It's like if you if you do if you say something but don't do it, um, they'll call you out in different ways, in very meaningful ways. And like you know, you're like okay, I have to actually really step up my game on this front, you know. And you do discover rapidly the things that you um, you're really good at, at talking about and not doing, you know. So those are some of the biggies for me. But I I mean it's been it's been Amazing. The other, well, the other the thing I probably love the most about being a parent is just the idea of bringing humans into the world and helping them see like the way you and I see the world. Yeah. It's just that you know, look, go off. You, this is a this is a shapeable, moldable thing around us. We can go, you know, it just the net, one more discovery, and we can do something profoundly awesome. You know, go find it. Go, you know, learn enough and be motivated enough and driven enough to go and find those things and make those changes. And they're, they're, the boys, you know, both, I have an 11 and 14 year old um, son, and they're both very much about that. That's great. It's really cool. I, I, get, I guess I didn't overdo it. You know, you can overdo it too, and then they, then they rebel. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, less profound than your own children on a personal level, you have not only been a strong person yourself, you spoke a little bit about some um, inspiration you had to just, you know, essentially a mentor that was said, yeah. you, you saw it is possible to just learn and be able to build yeah. 
And then you started building something that you had never built before. Yeah, I should Wait, mention, mention Bezos as a mentor at some well, point too. I was, I was about was to bring that up. So I was actually shocked. about to, yeah. And you know, Deschamps has this reputation for those who don't know, and maybe you could correct me. Is that these are the smartest people in the room, but it's also really intense. And he likes a certain type of creativity, right? There's a certain creative aspect that doesn't exist in other uh, funds in this way, mm -hmm. in other financial structures. Um, can you tell me how the either the atmosphere or the relationships with either David or Jeff or any of these people inspired you? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, D. E. Shaw was uh, was a such a weird um, experience for me. I mean, uh, uh, it actually was an amazing experience. But it was a very, I say, discontinuous experience for me in the sense that I, w I finished my computer science undergrad and master's at Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I had done. I, I was in that like small world mindset of like, oh, I'm going to go find a software you know, a programmer job somewhere. And I was interviewing all these random places and stuff and ranging from, I shouldn't say random, I mean, you know, but they, but they were, they, they weren't DE Shaw's, put it that way. Um, yeah, you know, it was like, I would talk to like Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore about like very scientific kind of, you know, national labs kind of things. And I was talking about, you know, the, to various companies about, you know, joining in a production software kind of, you know, capacity. And then I um, got this call. I, I was actually like, I was sitting in my lab at the Beckman Institute in Illinois, like looking at my various offers and trying to come up with some framework for deciding what to do with these offers. Um, and uh, I got a call from, it was, it was like 10 o'clock at night or something. Maybe maybe that's just a fantasy. Maybe it was like eight o'clock at night and I made up 10 over time. But, um, and it's it this, this woman um, who was recruiting for D.E. Shaw. And I'm like, well, how did you find me? And she's like, yeah, well, we have access to the list of people by GPA. And I'm like, oh. I didn't think that was like available. And she's like, it's not, but that doesn't matter right now. And so, <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. So she goes, uh, she goes, you know, you should, you know, have you, have you, you know, have you taken a position anywhere yet? And I was like, no, I'm literally it's like, do you have a camera? I'm like sitting here and you know, trying to and in those days we didn't, Actually, I mean, now you would be not surprised that there is oh, a yeah. camera looking at yeah, you. Yeah, totally. Right, yeah. That, yeah, those <laughs> are goes, back then. It was a surprise. It was like only, I, I didn't only have a, Shaw I didn't, could I didn't do a cell phone yet. Right, no. only Shaw could do it. Yeah, only Shaw, yeah, Shaw had his ways, but um, and Shaw had a very strong kind of recruiting discipline around going after like trying to find the best graduates from schools and stuff like that um, from from schools they really cared about. And then Illinois has a fantastic computer science program. I was really, I felt really um, fortunate to go there. But anyway, so so she said, you know. Um, hey, you know, I said, well, so what, I said, what is D.E. Shaw? And she goes, it's a hedge fund. And I'm like, what's a hedge fund? You, you didn't <laughs> know who he was. No, I, I'd never heard of David Shaw. Shaw. Okay. I'd never heard of hedge fund. I had no intention of living in New York. Uh -huh. I mean, it was like the, the furthest thing from my mind. But what I did have was one principle that got me to say, okay, I'm going to get on a plane and go out there, which is, you know, uh, you I don't close, you know, I'm going to sort of an opportunity preserver, meaning that like, I don't, I don't like to close doors until I understand them, you know? And so, and, and then I want to be able to make the choice. Like, I want to look at sort of have as much data as I can and make a choice. I'm, I've gotten good over the years of like knowing when to draw the line and collecting more data and all this kind of stuff and being really practical. But, but I was like, okay, you know, look, what, it's not going to kill me to fly out to New York for a day and meet these people. I mean, I'll learn something about a hedge fund and like what that is and see New York, right? So I went out there and um, I met truly the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. It was like, and I didn't even meet David and I didn't even meet Jeff on that visit. The other people I met were the smartest people I'd have met in my life. And I was like, holy crap. The like, second I mean, string was <laughs> yeah. Yeah. smarter than the top I, I, Yeah, I mean, these are, yeah, well, they weren't even the second <laughs> string. They're just really remarkable people. It's like Ann Binney and like Michael Wolf and Mike, uh, Peter Leventhal. Leventhal, he was right. Um, some of these names, I, I haven't even said them in a long time. Um, just really amazing, like, clearly driven, clearly brilliant people. And also super practical. And I was like, Wow. Uh, you know what convinced me that what blew me away was their standards. Their standards are so high. The interview process was grueling. I'm like, they're never going to hire me after this, you know? And then they, they made me an offer. And then Charles Ardai, the guy who made the offer, was also like the most amazing recruiter. But he, he's gone on to run big business. He's like an amazing, multifaceted guy, and I love him to death. And so anyway, so I, I joined, and then my first day, um, they said, hey, we're going to have you work with this guy, Jeff Bezos, who just joined. Um, you know, since you had, you know, since you were, um, you know, finishing your master's degree and, and, you know, since you'd interviewed it now, he joined. And so um, we started working together one on, just one-on-one -on -one to build this trading strategy to compete with Bernie Madoff. And um, it was just, you know, very difficult, by the way, when you're competing with a pyramid scheme. It, it, it definitely is a <laughs> Oh, handicap. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And we were kind of like, we were like, what the hell? You, you, know? you went in the long run, but what yeah. is the short-term game against a... Uh, totally. Scheme? 
Yeah, when, when, when Bernie got finally found out and busted, uh, Jeff sent me an email that day, and the subject line said, I knew that guy was no good. <laughs> that, was, that was all I said. Um, but anyway, it, yeah, he said that a few times previously. But, um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, and, and that's what drew me to D.E. Shaw. And then at D.E. Shaw, I found, yeah, an incredibly intense, um, you know, sometimes combative, like, you know, overly intense sometimes. Like, people are right at their red line. You know, they're just kind of like tipping into the red line of their engines a little bit. Um, and you just saw people kind of working around the clock and really interesting relationships got formed. I worked around the clock. I slept under my desk in a sleeping bag. And I had like showers in the office. I used to shower like three, four, five times a week maybe. Um, and you know, I went across the street to this little place and got like, you know, food at this little corner store that was open 24 hours. I mean, it was that kind of place. And I, it was, it was incredibly unconstrained. Like nobody was like, everybody was expected to be very um, autonomous. Um, but you were expected to do incredibly high bar stuff. Yeah. Like make really good smart decisions and build like like you know like the world depended on it kind of thing and I built and just profound amounts of stuff there it was ridiculous and I think I think back to those days I've never written more code per unit time since then you know I've written a lot of code since then but not not that volume. You have both worked with some of the most notoriously tough, successful, controversial leaders, and in a sense. From time to time become one yourself <laughs> but i wonder if this this sort of getting to the red bar but that it's very is it extremely hard for you to think much below that as yeah. a leader to now expect is, much yeah. less yeah oh yeah it's really hard for me i mean i have a real problem with um when people start talking about work-life balance yeah i'm to me it's work-life integration yeah. it's like you really I, it's like to me i you know i'm so passionate about what i do that I can't, I don't feel apologetic about thinking about it all the time, you know? I do want to be in the zone with my kids. I want to be in the zone with Tylee. I want to be in the zone. But I'm, but I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel bad to me, you know, to, um, to talk about work at home. You know what I mean? And, and it's, and like, it's funny when you, when, and, and also to like, you know, kind of have my days kind of like just schedule and so forth accordingly. I put a lot of hours in, um, you know, and it's funny when you're around people who are passionate about what they do, you like talking to them about what they do too. You know what I mean? It's kind of fun. Like, you know, my, my kids are super into it. They're kind of, they're, they're trying to get their head around 8 p.m. You know, they really are trying to understand this thing. And like we, my, I had this long walk on the MIT campus with my, my 14 year old son, Lucas. And we talked, all we talked about was quantum physics for like hours. And he's like, so dad, I just want to recap today for you. He's like, um, we flew to MIT. We walked around camp, the, you know, the MIT campus, visited the media lab, saw an incredible project, and then talked quantum physics for hours while we were eating ice cream. And I was like, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. He's like, okay, that seems completely abnormal, but I loved it. You know, it was like, it was like hilarious. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to lend out my kids to you for a, a, a few <laughs> days and, uh, uh, and see. How well, that's, by the way, the other thing you learn from kids is that, you know, you don't, you don't understand things as well as you think you do. Because you start explaining it. Anytime you want to see how good your learning this is, is true. try to teach it, right? Right. The, qu the question that uh, a university student would be embarrassed to ask even if they because yeah. they think they're supposed to know Correct. It, yeah. that the 14 year old will ask absolutely catches and really, you in what real. you really know or don't know <laughs> yep. I, I find it too yeah. I, mean, I find it even with my 8 year olds yeah absolutely yeah. Oh, it, keep, it, it keeps you sharp it, does. <laughs> it really does. It does I love that uh, so I, I, it's not that I want to get into all of the biographical stuff but I'm interested you were working with Bezos mm -hmm. Um, did you leave at the same time for did he for uh, Amazon or no. was there anything in between? Well, no, there was nothing. There was no. I was at DE Shaw for two more years, and, and you know there were a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, I was like the you know the, the, I just graduated from college and like you know getting myself up on my feet kind of thing. And Jeff was going off to start this you know this like this risky thing, and he's and, and also uh, probably more to the point, there was a two year no hire agreement with DE Shaw. And I think Jeff valued his relationship with David and didn't want to like get into a big battle about like hiring people away and stuff like that. So okay. he, he was really hands off with D.E. Shaw until, you know, really until uh, I, I joined. Um, I, he might have hired one other person or something. But, um, uh, and so, you know, and then several of us from D.E. Shaw went. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so he, he said, he said, look, I'm going to call you in two years um, at the end of this thing. And, um, and I'm going to tell you it's time to come to Amazon, assuming that I've gotten Amazon up and running. I said, that sounds great. So... He called me literally two years to the day. And <laughs> that's it was, it, a great and that was sign also, that he was, had an alert. <laughs> so funny. And, and, he, and I'm like, this is, I'm like, Jeff, this is literally two years to the day. He's like, I know. 
He's like, you know, so it's like, it's time to come, you know? And I, and, uh, you know, we talked about it and it was obvious, like I, it was so clear to me that it was the right thing to do. And so I kind of wrapped some things up at D.E. Shaw and then went out to, um, to Amazon and, um, yeah, and then I was there for almost nine years. It was fabulous. Was, was his vision unique enough, even when you were working together at Shaw, that you knew that this was a person that you would work with, even if he hadn't given you details about what the job would be later? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I, I just believed in Jeff in a deep way. Yeah. Like, you know, he's one of those people, if you spend time with him at all, you're like, this guy has got it. in, in like, on so many different dimensions, you know? So yeah, he's um, he's strategic. He's incredibly analytical. He's like at incredibly high standards. Like you know, he's driven. He's got en he's infinite energy. It's like you know, it just and, and he makes decisions. Like I, I I'll never forget this this uh, this one argument we had without getting into the topic of the argument, which isn't that interesting. Um, we were debating something, and um, at some point I made an argument, and he goes, "Oh, that was the key argument," and then he flipped and started arguing my side, cool. and I was stunned by that. That's, what, other one, that's one of many, many things that made Jeff in my eyes a mentor is he showed me things like that. And I was like, wow, I, I've never seen anyone Amazing. shift like that. And, like, and all he cared about was, was being, you know, being truth-seeking. He wanted truth. So he's going to argue his point emphatically as long as he believes it and he believes truth is behind it. But the minute you show him with any kind of confidence that it's not correct, he'll be like, oh, and he'll become the biggest advocate of the other position. That it's nearly the definition of intellectual integrity and yeah, honesty. Yeah, yeah. That is seems when you say it like something that almost everybody should have, and You're almost right. nobody does. Yeah, people and get too, people have way too much ego. We have to check ourselves for it all the time. All the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a question of how easily can you admit when you're wrong. You know, it's like if, and that was a really hard thing for me. I was like, you know, because I, I, I didn't want school and whatever. I got, I got a lot of praise for being smart or whatever, right? So I became this like, I, my ego was all about being right. And I had, I had to really unlearn that. And Jeff helped me unlearn that. He was the first person, to give, first, first person to give me meaningful, critical feedback. Say, you're doing great at these things and you suck at this. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah. my God, what did you say? I remember this one time you did that to me. I was like, you ruined my Christmas. I was so upset. And I came back, and, um, and it, it was about being organized. And, and it was just like, not even like a harsh criticism at all. I mean, whatever. And so I, I was all upset. Like he said one thing that I was not perfect at, and went off and whined about it and complained. And then I finally was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, that's like, if I, if I, first of all, if I, if I react this way, people are never going to give me feedback. So I'm going to be a hopeless. I'm going to have to figure everything out for myself, and that sucks. Secondly, it makes me an unbearable asshole. Yes, you know? that's what I was going to say. <laughs> and so, so it's like, you know, those are both really bad things. So, I'm gonna so I went off and I got this organizer book, which is what you did back then. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the Palm Pilot was just coming into existence. Um, and, uh, and I came back and I showed him my organizer book. And he's like, oh, he's like, thank God, you're not a total asshole. You know, it's like, or like, he's like, I, he was so happy that I learned through that. You know, that was like a breakthrough moment for us, actually. Isn't that funny? It's a little thing, but it was a really big deal. Yeah, no, it is. It is a really big deal. It is yeah. a really big deal. And, I, and that was a big, that was the beginning of me learning to learn from other people, you know, really. Can you think of an experience where then you as a leader uh, ex experienced the transformation of somebody who worked for you or a team um, that worked similarly or that maybe that didn't work that way and how you form a team that yeah. will be able to have the ability to pivot their way of thinking, yeah. to have that kind of honesty, and so, I mean, I, yeah, I, I have had that experience several times. I mean, um, sorry, go ahead and finish. No, your that's question. all. That's oh. all. Uh, I don't want to get into names because it's a little bit too. It's it's kind of personal for people, and they should tell their own. Oh, stories. of course, but, yeah. No, I, yeah, but no, yeah, I know you're not asking that. But um, but like I, even most recently at Uber, um, there's a guy who's incredibly high potential guy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, my approach is to just be super honest with people and also share my own stories, right? So I was like, look, you know, you are a really high potential guy, but you have climbed up a local maximum and you're stuck mm. up there. You're waving your flag on this little tiny mountain because you can't see it. There's nowhere up from here, but you don't see in the clouds. There's these other mountains that are much taller, but for you to get up that mountain, you got to go down this mountain and you got to climb this other thing. It's going to be a complete horrific pain in the ass for you. Uh, because you're going to feel uncomfortable, you're going to, but if you do it, you're going to run companies. You're going to be the kind of person who's going to be able to have profound impact on the world. You know, you're, you can have a little impact on the world where you are now, um, but I see so much more in you and you've got to like lose these certain behaviors and you've got to adopt these other behaviors 
And, um, and it was a really, and, he, and that person, much like I reacted, I told him my story about the Jeff thing and, and some of the other, other stories like that. And I, and he, he had, he was, he was actually much more mature than I was. He handled it really well, but was like, I am stunned. Like I've never had anyone tell me anything remotely close to that. And he's like, you know, and he trusted me enough that he was willing to reinvent himself, you know, and he did it. Uh, I mean, he's, he's like, he's made ridiculous strides on that front and I'm so proud of him. And, he, and he's like, you know, I, he is going to be the kind of guy who moves mountains, you know? Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, my, in general, what I try to do is I try to invest in people who like want to be, you know, they, they actually want it, you know what I mean? Like if you can, you can sort of like, I've, I've had a lot of experiences where I've tried really hard to get someone to sort of shift into something that they're just not going to shift into. It's like, it's, you know, it, it, they're very, I found actually, sadly, fundamental changes in themselves. Um, that's another thing that Jeff's amazing at, by the way, I learned. And he actually get, got me to be too optimistic about that. I'm like, well, you know, he's, look, look how the first guy I work for, he's like, he's transforming himself all the time. Um, you know, and then Dave Meadows, I had these two people, right? Yeah. And, and they're just like, you know, they're plugging in new modules and adapting continuously and growing. That growth mindset is not very common, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, it's depressingly uncommon. Uh, and I, that's one of the things I really drill home with my kids is like, you are never done learning. You know, never, ever, ever. I had a guy, and, and again, I won't mention names, I had a guy that I also worked with um, uh, in a previous life who said, he actually said the phrase, look, at this point, I'm fully baked. And he didn't mean he was high. He meant he was like, done learning. <laughs> not, not somebody you want to be working with. No. And I was, like, I was like, you should never say that phrase again. Yeah. And then after you stop saying that phrase forever, you should like actually change your underlying behavior around it too because it's horrible. But I'm like, if nothing else, the world is constantly changing. So like, you can't be, you, you can't believe you've learned everything. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, but also, it's just a like guarantee to like lead to failure, you know. Yeah. It's like, but anyway, so so yeah, that's I've I've had I've had more failures than successes with helping people, um, you know, kind of find that pivot and and explode into you know awesomeness. But I've had some great successes there, and only a few of them. You only need one to feel amazing about oh, it, you know. Yeah. It's such a because you know I, I'm so grateful to Jeff for all the unlocks he gave me um, that I that I just want to help people with that as much as I can. So I'm always trying to find that for folks if they you know and, some, you know, and sometimes people some people don't need them. They just they're just on the right they're on an amazing trajectory you know. But if I can see that and I can be helpful, then I'm I'm all about it. Now this is maybe an area that you won't be comfortable talking about, and that's okay. We won't. But uh, Uber, you played. Obviously, you were the chief product officer. You mm -hmm. played a critical role at Uber. Um, and when I look at what you were doing at Uber, it was not as a taxi service, right. which I kind of think Uber is in a sense. Um, it was the actual big things that do change trans transformative yeah. in transformative ways the world works. Yeah. So, um, you know, elevate yeah. uh, some of these other big ideas. But... At this time, you are um, more experienced than anybody else at the company. You've had these years, you created major products for the biggest, most important company in the world at Amazon. And there, there, there's a sense that you clearly were looking towards the future. Yeah. Um, how, how are you able then to navigate being a, a mentor that can push that forward, but not having a structure where you have a Jeff Bezos mm, you mean someone to support you. Yeah, well... Um, or did you? You know, I mean, that, that's the other thing. Maybe, maybe you did. It's, it's a really interesting kind of multifaceted question. I'm trying to figure out how to... By the way, part of it. it could lead to why aren't we seeing flying cars, right? I mean, to, in, in my mind, the two yeah. things can kind of go together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, we will see flying cars, I believe. I still think that's gonna that's gonna happen. I mean, I I don't have sufficient ego to believe me leaving killed it. You know what I mean? Because um, I, I what I what I just you know, before I start answering the question, I guess more completely, what I really tried to do with Elevate um, was prove to people that it was possible, and and not just possible, but like really lucrative and freaking transformational. Like you know, so if you show people those things. And you and you enlist them to be part of building it. Uh, things take on a life of their own, you know. And it doesn't mean it will it will definitely succeed on the timeline that I laid out or anything else. It's on. It's been pretty much moving on the timeline, but um, but that, you know the big milestones are yet to be seen, right? 
um, is, you know, it, it does, but it does mean that, uh, you know, you have a lot of people rooting for it to be successful. And I think the more, and anybody who hears about it and starts to understand it, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit today, um, you know, goes, geez, you know, uh, you guys actually did think about this all the way through. Like, it's not, there's not some big gaping problem with the idea. Like there is, you know, the, the, generally speaking, like, you know, or, or the problem of, of uh, flying cars, I don't like to call it that. I think of it as the problem of um, utilizing the airspace above cities for transportation. Right. Uh, and, you know, and we have three-dimensional buildings and two-dimensional roadways, you know, and that's a problem, you know, like you, that projection is very constrained, you know. So, um, so what do we, how do we use that, use that bandwidth? And, you know, and Elon has an approach of going underground. There's another way of doing it. And there's also, you know, a lot of physics to figure out there. Um, but what I, so what I started with was, <clears throat> what are the physics uh, that govern the airspace, you know, moving through the air? Like, you know, like I, I didn't presume any particular vehicle. I mean, when you ask people, usually people pattern match and they don't think in first principles. So I, when I ask, when you ask people like, you know, hey, why don't you think we're using the airspace above cities to move people around? And they go, well, because helicopters are too expensive. Mm. I'm like, oh, well, that's presumptuous. Like you're starting with a helicopter as a vehicle. Um, as, a as a mechanism, like, you know, maybe I'm going to use catapults <laughs> or, you know, maybe I'm going to use, you know, something completely different. So what we did was we said like, look, could we, could we, um, write down the envelope of the, the physics and then build a vehicle that lives within that envelope and, uh, that would make the economics work and, and so on and so forth. And the answer was yes. And we wrote a 98 page white paper and we published it to the world. And I remember, uh, you know, Nikhil and Mark Moore and I, Nikhil Goyle, who runs product there, and, and Mark Moore and I, who were kind of the primary authors on it. There were several other authors as well. But I remember we were ready to push the button on the, on, to publish the paper. And, like, you don't know. Like, you're, you're, like, opening yourself up for inspection. It's a white paper. It's, like, everything we believe is now written down in yeah. black and white, right? All kind of diagrams. And, and we're, like, you know, and it, it, might, it may be someone who's, like, much smarter than us is going to look at this and be like, you guys are totally stupid. You missed it. That didn't happen. What happened was people were, like, holy crap. Um, because what, what we showed was um, with a different type of vehicle and the ride-sharing model and some thinking about how to structure this thing, um, you can build a vast mass transit system that uh, can fly people from point A to point B at 200 miles an hour with no congestion. Yeah. And that's completely game-changing for humanity. You know yeah. I mean? No, it, it checks off stagnation. It checks off one of the really big ones is that we spend our time stuck in traffic yeah others being that we do things that aren't inherently human as work tasks another right. one may be you know uh congestion in cities another one may be that we die <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know but yeah, but yeah, we've got either one yeah <laughs> yeah no it's no question and i mean it's you know there's this, there's this thing that's the marchetti constant which says that you know people um on in the mean will uh work only 30 minutes away from or live only 30 minutes away from where they work um, so they don't want to commute more than a full hour per day, half hour in, half hour out. And cities have grown. There's all this evidence. I, I, I gave the police all the presentation I did yeah. in, in Florida. Um, you know, there's all this evidence around that. Well, I mean, if you can fly 200 miles an hour, you expand the you expand the, di the diameter. So then congestion in cities right. just drops. Just just like physical congestion, which is you know both good and bad because you want like density for certain things. But like I think it's a really good thing for people generally. Well, if you're going fast enough, then it's just like being next door. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, things like Hyperloop could take care of that, too. I mean, there are other ways of... I, and it, yeah. it also should it deal with another stagnation or a problem, which I wouldn't say it is a stagnation or kind of crisis, is that in places where you want to live, where people want to live, it's extremely expensive to yeah, live. Yeah, yeah. If you can get anywhere quickly, there's plenty of land out in the world. Yeah. It should be less expensive to live an urban-style life yeah. without being... Yeah, I mean, um, right in the yeah. center of San Francisco. I love the idea of people being more spread out and having more land to like be. I mean, I, I love the expanses of land and being able to just run around free in the wilderness or whatever. I love that feeling. And it's like, and I just, I just, I would love for more people to have more space to themselves, you know? Where did and you grow from, up? Uh, Michigan, near Detroit, in, in, but in the suburbs in Rochester <laughs> Hills. So I watched it turn from a farmland into this like upscale suburb, you know? Um, but you know, I used to ride my bike around and like, it just, you know, it, it just, and I, I went to school in Illinois and I rode my bike along the farms. Right. So I'm <laughs> very familiar with that feeling, you know, and, uh, and you know, and then I've also lived in, in San Francisco in the Castro, you know? Right. And you, yeah. And with this type of transportation, you get the best of both worlds. Yeah. You're at the best restaurant and you have land. Right. And that land is not unbelievably expensive it's like living in the midwest it's affordable right. and you're still able to go to new york or san francisco yeah exactly. which just no longer exists around here we're right now 
near San Francisco. I yeah. live in New York. Yeah. There's no longer a, a place that you can get to with transportation that exists right now. Right. That is affordable the for mi many, many people. Yeah. And, and that'll happen with new transportation methods too over time. But you'll, you get these nice, nice discontinuous curves. Like at that moment when the person becomes available, there's a fairly long period of time that the, the world absorbs it, right? Right. And, it, and the economics all shift. Um, and so that'll be a nice time to be alive. Because I think, I think people will find it's like calmer to live. Yeah, and that's near term. Yeah, that's really near term. And this, 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 I mean, this decade, this should be a thriving, full-scale thing. I mean, it really comes down to how well Dara can run the company. You know? So is it really, are we really reliant on if Uber doesn't do this, it sets it back for five years? Could be that way. I mean, I think Uber, I mean, Uber is definitely the, the kind of the, um, the leader of this thing, you know? Um, there's a lot of people who are, you know, who are, um, who've been thinking about it and working on the problem, but Uber, uh, I think played this catalyzing and kind of like, uh, aggregating role of pulling everyone into it. I mean, you know, Boeing got involved and Embraer got involved and built helicopter and now there's this relationship with Joby Aviation. And it was a Joby, uh, Joe Ben Beavert is a, is a fantastic innovator who built it. He's already got an aircraft flying, you know, that fits this, this, he, his, his, he had this vision before <laughs> I even knew about this idea. Um, you know, and I, and I, I sort of backed into it and then, you know, uh, you know, it was like, you know, wow, um, this is a, this is a fantastic vision. But the thing is Uber brings the ride sharing, Uber brings the scale. So you can, you know, you can push a button on your phone to get a ride and suddenly there's a flight available, you know, and we can, we can weave it into the existing framework in a, in a sort of seamless way. It would be too hard for anybody else to catch up to That's, that. Yeah, it would be very hard. I mean, it's, it's, uh. You know, the only way somebody could do it is if, if all the technology providers and all the real estate people like sold to multiple parties. But you know, that would be a, a silly way to build a business if you let that happen. So, um, so I, you know, so I, I think it's going to be, and, and the scale at which Uber operates is not matched. So, yeah. Let's talk about scale and size of businesses. So, I've never worked in a large company. You've worked in the one of the largest companies, you, and you've worked in companies that became large mm -hmm. that weren't before. Yeah, we went from five hundred people to eighteen thousand while I was at Uber. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm trying to f figure out why, other than, strangely enough, other than Amazon, that it doesn't, it doesn't seem like the kind of innovation that I would expect is coming out of big, big tech. So I, 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 I mean, I make the example on almost all of these interviews where I talk about why isn't Alphabet able with almost limitless amounts of cash? Mm-hmm and access to top talent, able to put out um, more important technologies into the world. Yeah. Does it have to do um, with, many people when I ask this question, on this, whether on this podcast, they, they think it has something to do with publicly traded, large company, you know, um, market-driven, short-term results, I don't think that doesn't feel that, that doesn't feel exactly right. I mean, I always say, you know, that's a thing. That, that is a thing. absolutely a thing. Yeah, but but I not, have not I been able to yeah. put my finger on why Edison Labs could, for thirty people, invent the yeah. future. Then why why big inventions don't always come from these types of big companies? What is going on here, and how have you seen this throughout your career in large companies in different yeah. ways? Is there ways of addressing it that aren't being addressed? Yeah, it's not, it's, it, obviously the answer is, is not gonna be easy because if it were easy, everyone would do it, right? Um, I, I had this like this crazy path of going to D.E. Shaw and Amazon, you know, where uh, like they're innovation factories and they, for real. Um, and and so I, I, was, I didn't realize how uh, poorly distributed that capability is until I got out into the real world and or the rest of the world and started seeing uh, you know, kind of, wow, this, you're right. I, I, I have the same observation. Um, one, one thing that is, seems to be very real to me is that you either have to actually have or simulate a kind of life or death kind of need to get something done. Um, so, you know, it's like Jeff, mm. Jeff was, and everything Jeff d drove at Amazon and drives at Amazon, I presume today, um, you feel this like, this has to work. We have to figure this out. Um, and, and so, like, to give you an example, you know, I remember my, my friend Paul Kodas came from D.E. Shaw to Amazon as well, and his first, the first thing he owned at Amazon was auctions. So Amazon tried to 
beat eBay beat at eBay. auctions and lost miserably, right? Um, but and some companies might be like, ah, we're just not. This whole thing is like, you know, we'll just do, we'll keep the sticks to our knitting kind of thing, right? Um, and that's not. Jeff is like, no, no, no. This doesn't make. We we are going to crack the code on third party, um, third party merchants because there's a lot of them out there, and you know, we need to be a platform as much as a product, you know, company. AWS is another example of that, right? Um, but it, but you know. So we tried, you know, Z shops, and we tried shop the web, and we tried. I mean, there's like four or five different initiatives, and then finally we came up with this idea. It was kind of like these calm forehead moments, you know. It was we called the single detail page project. We were like, we'll just have one detail page, and anybody can sell against that item. You know, Amazon will be a seller, and other people will be a seller, and we'll have to figure. And it's not as palm forehead as it sounds because. Like, you know, the first reaction is, well, well, wait a minute, Amazon has an amazing advantage. Like, you know, uh, these other sellers aren't going to show up. And, you know, Jeff made the observation that people will show up because this is where all people buy things are. And so, you know, if, like, if you happen to be the place that's, you know, that's the first resort to find, discover, and buy anything online, um, people want to sell stuff there. Even if, they, even if they feel like they're maybe a little bit disadvantaged by the, by the primary retailer. Um, and then we we're very, very thoughtful about the way we... Um, you know, integrated third-party sellers in and just kept making it better and better. And Prime, of course, took it to the next level. And I got to work on that problem very directly. I got to build Prime, as you know, um, with my, you know, lead the team to build Prime. I didn't write the actual code myself. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, so, you know, I think what happens is, I, what you would feel at Amazon is everything is tied to the mission. Everything must, we're, we're going to just keep running at this thing because we're going to have to crack the code on this. This is, this yeah. is like, this sort of like this built-in drive is like, in the air there, like you just you just feel it, um, and I don't I, I don't want to speak with any kind of authority or false authority about about Alphabet, but my sense is that um, they don't have that same kind of life or death we have to make this work. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a toy. It's sort of a, a lab to play around with ideas, and then it has a way of escalating ideas into products, but not an urgency to do that or a drive yeah. to do that or a, you know. I I think that's the closest to making sense that. I you actually know the right answer, to. but you're just not. You're no, no, I'm, not, I'm asking. No, that's I mean, that's the closest to making sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then somehow it doesn't make sense to me that just oh we have quarterly earnings. Well, so does Amazon, yeah. right? I mean, the, uh, there, uh, uh, this happens everywhere. That doesn't, all of the other excuses. That, so to me, it feels like you're even your even if I didn't know you and this these inside observations about Amazon. The general understanding about Amazon and what most people think about is this sort of long-term planning and uh, for something that is going to succeed, that is bigger than the thing you did before. And yeah. if, if there is any short-term skepticism, that's not going to uh, drive the business per se. I mean, this, right. is, this is the common knowledge. You have the inside knowledge of yeah. how to execute on that. Yeah, well, I'll tell you the other thing about this that comes with this like incredible drive to be able to do, you know, to innovate and, and, you know, and build these things is you, you start to say, I mean, if you, if you take this to its natural conclusion, you're like, well, wait, we have to turn our innovation inward too and, and reinvent the organization. Because there's, there, there's a lot of truth to the fact that as companies get big, they get slow. Now, it doesn't mean that has to be the case. There's correlation and there's causation, right? And uh, as you can see with Amazon, as it gets big, it gets fast. Um, you know, it's like, so Amazon keeps adding people and keeps producing more things for you at a time. What generally happens in companies is you, as you add people, you see like almost like an N squared slowdown. It's like everyone's talking to everyone. Obviously, they're not, but like, but you're, but is, is, it feels like that. The complexity goes way up, the organizational, the communication overhead, the organizational overhead, the number of things, people who can say no, the number of ways you can be stopped. Um, all the, they, in fact, not only do they exist, but the fact of their existence, of all these barriers, puts you into a different mental state. You kind of like take a deep breath, and you're just like, it's just gonna be really freaking slow. Like, you know, we're gonna be crossing the desert, it's gonna be a slog. Uh, I'm not going to really run very fast because there's no point in it because I'm just going to run into that wall harder, right? So you just kind of, everything just slows down. People aren't really motivated. You just, you just lose like immense amounts of, of value that way. Um, whereas if you, if you find a way, and this is, this is not easy. Like I think Amazon's you know, done the best in the world at this. Um, you know, based on my knowledge, I'm sure there's other great examples out there too, but if you can find a way to partition the world and, uh, and let units individually uh, operate individually, that is a game changer. 
For sure. So it's still like small businesses. Yeah, little bit like little tiny ones. I mean, like when I now I don't I don't know how two pizza, two pizza teams have evolved completely. Amazon, I haven't been super close to it, but you know, I, I, Jeff Wilkie and I created the first two pizza teams at Amazon. This is the idea. They call them two pizza teams. It's a cool name that I don't know who came with that. Probably Bezos, but um, it was you know teams that were small enough that you could give them two pizzas and be, they'd be satisfied for dinner. Yeah, right? so okay. That's the idea. So, um, you know, and, and we make all these jokes about, like, well, we have big eaters on our team, whatever. Um, you know, but, but anyway, that, it was like 10 people, basically. So if you have more, the, the observation was, when you start getting teams above, you know, like 10 people, you get this coordination overhead. You start having, you really can't get everyone in a room very easily. Uh, everyone's not fully up to speed. People don't feel like they can do that. You, you lose the prairie dog moment where people pop their head up and ask a question of the whole group, right? Uh, and so, you, 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 you know, there, there's a, you know, companies mostly just go, well, that's just what comes with getting bigger. But then it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and you get so damn slow and so bureaucratic that thing, it's like you're just like walking through molasses in the winter kind of thing, you know? You can't make any progress. Um, and so, Jeff's like, look, let's figure out a way to subdivide these, these, our problem space into tiny little teams that can run at this thing, they can have their own fitness function, their own mathematical metric-based way of measuring their success. Uh, that's very hard too, by the way. I'm sure you've experienced that. Um, and, you know, and then let them own the whole problem. Yeah. You know? Just let them, a cross-functional team, you don't, the, you're, the, the whole idea of my team going to your team and saying, hey, Matthew, um, it would be really awesome if you would build X for me. Because what you're gonna say is, that's great, I can probably build X for you, but I probably can't start it for a quarter or two. <laughs> and and like I'm asking for X because I need X yesterday, right. right? So now I just go and die in a corner somewhere, right? Because I'm just I'm stuck. And so we tried to get to a place where it doesn't happen right away. But if you do this for long enough, you sort of tail wagging the dog style. You get to the point where people build hardened APIs and they build they build ways to not have to talk to each other. And that, it's, not, it's not as antisocial as it sounds. It's actually super rewarding. If you can just sit down, like you know, if you feeling. take ownership and and create something, and you know that it was you, rather yeah. than part of a big process and of you an can, enormous and company, you can build. You can build. Yes. You're not. You know, we we used to have this uh, this saying at Amazon: "Let builders build." Yeah. I mean, it's so simple, and that got misinterpreted in Uber as we had a cultural value called "Let builders build." I brought that to Uber. Um, People are like, oh, that's, you know, people, people just build all kinds of crap and it doesn't fit together. It's like, no, you have to do it intelligently. You have to figure out, you know, senior leaders need to think about this and have like a story arc around it. Um, but, but if you can find a way to tell people go and they can just go, they can sit down at their, at, their, at their laptop and start banging code out and they can push it into production and it goes, like, oh my God, like people are unlocked, they go, they're on fire. Whereas the minute you put a blocker in front of a builder, they like lose like hope. <laughs> It's it's really I'm sure you've seen this. Oh yes, it's so painful. So like that's the that's the magic. Now it doesn't mean it's easy, and you have to be relentless about it. There's a ton of innovation to do. You you can't just say oh we'll just implement two pizza teams. It's an entire cultural revolution for most companies to think that way. Most companies cannot transform in that in that fashion. I think I'll stop asking the question in these things now. I think it's close enough for now that I I I, I get the difference between if your main product is appears to be successful. So mm -hmm. there's no argument, and I hate to pick on Alphabet because, yeah, it's, you know, we use it every day. We yeah. all use Google they're, every they're, single they're day. Epic people doing epic things. So, yeah. it's, you know, but it's, it's a reference we all can see. Yeah. They have, they're a big company that looks successful. And they may very well define themselves as successful. Whereas a group of 10 people that are building something new that are, are pushed to build that and get it to market, not to play with it as a science project, right. but that to be the next big thing yeah. is not considered successful until they've built it. Right. Is it something like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and by the way, I bring this mentality to Atomic Machines. Like we're working on a problem that could easily devolve into a science lab, right? And I will it's not almost possible. It's almost impossible, by the way, not to start it as a science lab. So what you're going to bring is very unique yeah, in that world. Yeah, and that's, it's one I know a I little bit, and that's why that's it's actually, such yeah. a challenger. I think it's actually yes. It's like it's it's like sort of my my big thing. Like my if there's one characteristic that I think brings the most value to me in the role of running this. It's not because I'm the I didn't study this. I didn't have to go through the physics program you went through. I studied computer science, right? Um, I've got a great co-founder who's a physicist and you know and a, and a great inventor. But it's like you know what I'm going to bring value is the way I think about it. 
the way I approach it, the way I lead through it, the questions I ask, the things I require, the pushing I do. It's like, you know, Prashant, you know, my co-founder, he's never had these kinds of conversations before, you know? And it's, but, but he, he like loves it because he, he, he has this very deep, and the reason, you know, we ended up together is because he has a very deep desire to build. Like he wants yeah. to build things. And that's a, that by the way, when you, when you're building companies that are companies that build, like building, you're building, building companies, yeah. um, you you know, you look for a certain kind of person. You look for people who like don't feel good about themselves and they don't actually yield value just out into the world. Right. They don't, they don't want to just think about an idea. Some people get a lot of value out of thinking about an idea and that's actually, those people are important and they can, they push the world forward in other ways. Right. Um, you know, and they make they, their contributions could be in the form of ideas. Right. But if you want to do something like atomic machines and have it be meaningful, You've got to produce things that do things in the world that no one's ever done before, right? So you know, so when you hold yourself to that bar, um, you know, and you, and you push for that, that that is is a huge difference maker. It's a cultural difference maker, and it, and it is, I cannot overstate how valuable that is in terms of making a company successful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I've seen it both from spending time in factories and in academic labs and then trying to mix the two with teams yeah. at, at, at our company. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but what's, what's interesting is, is, am, is this the first time that you have not just led a team with something brand new, but started a company from scratch to build something that is big? No, no, I started a company um, coming out of Amazon. So in between Amazon and Groupon, so I sold my company to Groupon, so I ended up at Groupon. Um, but the, uh, the company was Pelago, and I learned an immense amount from that experience. Holy crap. I mean, I learned a lot about my management style. I learned a lot about being an entrepreneur. I learned a lot of things that, are, that I assumed to took for granted from being at Amazon are not free. And you've got to really go and, and, you know, and work hard for those things. But um, for five and a half years, we tried to build a, a product called World. We did build a product called World, many, many versions of it, W-H-R-R-L. I also learned don't name things like that. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, and I, and I had this like very long-term vision. I'm like, we're going to call it Pelago, which is like an archipelago of a whole bunch of amazing things that come together to form in, like a nation of amazingness, right? And, uh, and so World was our first product <laughs> and our only product, it turns out. Um, but, uh, you know, we got to the point where we had, you know, hundreds of thousands to, you know, low millions of people using this thing on a regular basis. And what it basically let you do, the idea that I had in starting the company was, hey, you know, no one's done, no one's brought like Amazon-like recommendation technology to the physical world. Uh, you know, you, it, you still, it's still hard to discover places. It's like very hard. I'm, I'm always like astounded by it. Like, you know, I want to get off the plane in New York City. I want to go to New York City and I want to have things fall on me. I want it to go, you need to go here. I know you, I know you, and I know you need to go here and you have this experience, right? And it's like, and I want to go do those things. I don't want to have that be this like needle in a haystack thing. And so, um, so you know, we, we started building that. We started leveraging location technology. That was a brand new thing back in 2006 when I started the company. Um, and we tried to create a thing called foot streams where we would passively track the places people went so we could do people who go here, like just like click streams on the web, right? People who go here also go here. People who go here go here afterwards and that sort of thing. And then try to draw, draw linkages between people so we could figure out based on other people's patterns what you should do, like the kinds of things that would be interesting to you. You may, I'm almost sure, disagree with me on. Okay. My instinct is that building a molecular nanotech company it is the opposite. Um, the in, re- in what dimension? Or yeah, dimensions. so obvious things aren't the way you'll Instead of raising your money, money away. Fit, <laughs> almost. <laughs> oh, God. Almost. Please. But more than, more than that, I see a recommendation engine of yeah. sorts is um, taking, uh, having humans have one step away from being creative in what they do. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have, to, we need to be productive in a sense that we can't spend all of our time being creative and try to find a needle in a haystack. Right. So I'm not saying there's something ethically wrong with what you did there or right. at all. But I, I, I picture the end result of nanotechnology being the freedom of humans to be able to be creative in whatever way a human can be creative. Yeah. So it's unlocking something rather than recommending something. Oh, for sure. Oh, I mean, these are radically different companies. There's no question. And I wonder, they are radically different companies. Does the mission of that company, being that they are two huge missions, uh, different missions, change the way that you found lead the effort? Um, I mean... 
Probably. Like, I mean, undoubtedly, yes, because but the way I would say it is I'm, I build to the mission. So like whatever, you know, whatever the mission is, is going to dictate what I'm going to do, right? So I don't, I definitely don't have some playbook I brought from Pelago that I'm like, okay, now step one, now step two, right? It's just, it looks very different. Right. The kind of people that I'm going to hire, the types of steps that we're going to take, you know, um, you know, we're, we're building a, a hybrid platform, you know, product company. Um, you know, that was not what Pelago was. And so it's going to, it's going to have all kinds of different aspects. Of that. So the question is, how do you, how do you do that? How do you make a platform that works, that people care about that? You know, like what kind of, what kind of people do you have to talk to? Well, you know, what's the best way to make sure that your platform is producing something of value? Well, the, one of the best ways is to build a product on it and ship the product. So can you, can you actually build a product that's valuable enough that it, can, it, it actually is a major revenue driver for the company, right? And, and like that will be very helpful at, at determining the specifications of my platform 1.0. You know, if I can't make my product with my platform, my platform's a failure. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. So you know, so it's a very different thought process. But yeah, I would absolutely agree with you. There's, there's a, it's you, all of the thinking is mission specific. No yeah. question about it. We could talk forever, and yeah, so we I'm do. worried <laughs> I, I, we because we, <laughs> it, it's impossible for me to set up a 30-minute phone call with you because I'm frustrated when I have to hang up the phone. So it's best when we can just lock, bring two days together, which we've done before yeah. with no interruptions. I know. We definitely have to do that again. So I would love to continue this. Maybe a part two sometime. This is enough for all of us to digest your wisdom. Oh, and geez. I appreciate your friendship oh, me too. and your guidance. And uh, I, I learn a lot. So thank too. you so much for doing this with me. Too. For sure. Thanks for having me.